There are two texts we're going to read together this morning from Psalm 2 and Acts chapter 4, if you'd please turn there. It is our custom here to stand for the reading of God's word, if you would please do that now. title of the sermon is Praying for Boldness, something that happens in our text. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God will endure forever. Now let's hear and heed it faithfully together. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you would now please turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, beginning at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let us pray. We thank you, O Lord, that the same Holy Spirit that granted boldness to your church on that day continues to abide with your church, that we not only have boldness, but faith, hope, and love. We, Lord, we believe, we ask that you'd help us even in our unbelief to behold all the wondrous truths of your word. Help us in particular to see Jesus glorified and triumphant in heaven as the holy servant whom you have anointed. And might we draw from this text courage and boldness to proclaim faithfully the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Many people who come to faith later 
in life recognize that there's a certain sense in which even before we became Christians, we had hymnals of our own, and, and many of those hymnals were written by secular musicians. In 1993, one of my arguably least favorite bands was a band named Aerosmith. But they had a great habit, as some did, of asking good questions, though never finding the right answers. And in a song entitled Living on the Edge, they are sensitive to this reality. There's something wrong with the world today, and I don't know what it is. And then the refrain of the song over and over and over, and now you're going to hear it, and I apologize if it's stuck in your head, is we're living on the edge. What is wrong with the world today? And if secular musicians and authors cannot answer that question, uh, we can take confidence in the fact that the Bible does, and our text today uh, will help us to answer it even more fully. We're going to approach the text by way of the three questions that you have in your outline, and the first we'll consider together is, why does the gospel bring opposition? Aerosmith was not the first to ask the question, what's wrong with the world today? In fact, inspired psalms address the very same question in Scripture itself. Psalm 2, that you've had read now several times, apparently it's a Psalm 2 Sunday, begins with the question, why do the nations rage? Why does the world set itself against God, against the Lord, against His anointed? When it asks the question, why do the nations rage, the word rage uh, is a really loud, noisy, violent gathering. Not simply shaking the fist, but stamping the foot in a wild, irrational rage. In many ways, this is the answer to the question, what's wrong with the world today? The world rages against God. One author describes a book that's very dear to us, the Bible, as the true story of the whole world. And I love that nickname for the Bible. The true story of the whole world. Long before the time of the apostles, King David was anointed by the Lord. Psalm 2 celebrated this fact that he was the Lord's anointed. And when you think about it, it is interesting that almost as soon as King David is anointed as Lord and King in Israel, uh, almost as soon as he is anointed as king, he is persecuted just that fast. Saul, his once friend, now turns enemy. Saul's army gathers up behind David to persecute him and pursue him. The Gentile Philistines from another direction and vantage point also set themselves against King David. And the point is, you have Jew and Gentile gathering together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. They all revolt against him. There is a game our kids play, Covenant kids here at our church even play it in a certain fashion in the backyard of our church. When I was little, it was called King of the Mountain or King of the Hill. Uh, You stand up on top of the hill, and then others try to climb up and take you down however they can. There's a little mount in the back. I've watched kids play that game. But it's not only a game that kids play. It's a spiritual reality that all of us engage It is what R.C. Sproul termed cosmic treason, the world's attempt, men and women, boy and girl, to climb up the mount of the Lord and to take God off that we might stand in his place and celebrate and glorify and enjoy ourselves. 
And that king of the mountain illustration works fairly well for what will God do as he himself stands upon his mount, his holy hill in Zion. Psalm 2 tells us the answer. The first thing he does is laugh. This would be like the children of the church trying to take me off that hill in the back. It's not likely going to work. The Lord himself, he laughs and then he speaks and he tells them, no, is this not going to work? This is not going to end well for you. Thirdly, he terrifies them. He threatens them. That judgment and fury and wrath are what await them. This is no game and no laughing matter. And finally, he breaks them. He crushes them like an iron stick hitting a clay pot. Beloved, this is the true story of the whole world. God is king of the mountain. And the nations may rage and seem strong and powerful. Kings may gather against him and against his anointed, but they will never win. They will never succeed. He will laugh at them. He will terrify them. And he will crush them. While this is the true story of the whole world, it's not the whole story. David may be the first person to mouth these words of Psalm 2, but very importantly, David is not the last. Psalm 2 becomes the psalm of our Savior, who is referred to in our text twice with almost identical language, God's holy servant, Jesus. He is the anointed of the Lord. He is that king who is greater than David. But not only is he a king who is greater than David, so also is the persecution against him greater than that which David experienced. Just like David, he was anointed by God. He was set apart as king. But when Jesus came, he proclaimed a kingdom that was far greater than the kingdom that David saw and brought. But just like David, notice the parallel. As soon as Jesus is anointed in his baptism, as soon as Jesus is declared from heaven, truly this is his son, the king that is sent, he is persecuted. Jews gather against him. Gentiles gather against him. This is what Peter and John are saying. What happened in David at a scale of this big has happened with Jesus at a scale much greater. Jews and Gentiles have gathered against them. The nations have raged. The kingdoms have plotted. And Psalm 2 asks the question, why? Why did they plot in vain? And in a certain sense, when you think about it, was their vain plot actually even vain? What do you mean by that? Well, Psalm 2 says they plot in vain. But those that gathered together against Jesus actually seemed to succeed. They killed him. They crucified the Lord's anointed. For a moment in time, it would seem that the gathered Jew and Gentiles, that persecution against Jesus, it would seem for a moment in time that they had actually won, that their violent rage had accomplished this unholy purpose, that the king of the hill had been taken down. Jesus, the holy servant, anointed of the Lord, was dead. And with this, the nations were pleased. You might almost imagine the day before Jesus died, the nations were raging, and the day after, they were quiet. But Acts 4 does not gather around the fact so much of Jesus' death, but the fact, rather, of his resurrection. Twice in our text, the language 
verbs are used of people gathering. In the first instance, it's the nations that have gathered together like a swarm of bees against Jesus. On the other side of the text, it is the church made up of Jew and Gentile gathered together, but for Jesus and in Jesus. And what has caused this second gathering to take place is not the death of Jesus. That was the purpose for which the Gentiles came together, the nations came together. But in Acts 4, what brings people together is actually the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But pause and think about it. Sin and rebellion create a common bond. Unbelief loves company. Darkness loves fellowship. Sin and rebellion create a common bond. But in Acts 2, the Lord gathered a people on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit brought otherwise rebels and foreigners, even strangers to one another, together into the name of Jesus. And as a result of the Spirit coming and being poured out upon those people, upon that day, the apostles have now begun to preach a mighty gospel, a fiery gospel. And the effect of that gospel is to gather together, on the one hand, the persecutors in opposition to the Lord, and yet from those very same persecutors and opposers to gather his people. That's how powerful the gospel is. Sin and rebellion create a common bond, but the righteousness of the gospel creates an even stronger one. And so the apostles have begun to proclaim King Jesus is now on his throne, reigning in heaven, reigning not only in, but through his people. And how do the nations respond? This is very important. As it was with the Lord of the church, so it is with the church of the Lord. The nations gather and they rage against it. Do not wonder for a moment, beloved, if the nations, the unbelieving people around us, are quietly and simply indifferent to the church. They hate it and they rage against it with every fabric of their being. They gather and they rage as with the Lord, so also with his people. The bottom line, simply put, is the gospel creates opposition. The gospel creates opposition. And those who are rejecting it are rejecting the Lord and his anointed. Psalm 2 is a stage carried out to the very end of the age, even upon which the church continues to stand. To say it differently, kids appreciate the illustration, the world is still trying to take the hill from the Lord and his anointed. And yet his church is a city set upon the hill, and the Lord has said it shall not be overtaken, that city shall not fall. The world is guilty of cosmic treason and shall be judged. And what is their only hope, their only way out? I love the language. It is to kiss the sun. What does that mean? You've heard it in Psalm 2. You've heard it a couple times now today. What does it mean to kiss the sun? Is it a strange phrase to you? Well, don't, don't think it's simply like that sweet little thing that you probably exchange with somebody in your house. It's much more than that. That's sweet. It's cute but it's also trite and somewhat shallow. To kiss the sun. Picture somebody standing before a king and getting down on their knee and kissing their hand as a sign of submission, respect, and allegiance. That's what Psalm 2 means. This is not a little peck on the cheek. This is a posture of submission to the king of kings and lord of lords. It's a way of saying, I acknowledge Jesus as my king. 
I entrust myself to Him as to my Savior. I submit to Him in all of His ways as to my Lord. That's what it means, beloved, to kiss the Son. In a certain sense, to make it all very simple, there really are only two types of people in the world. Those who will kiss Jesus and those who will not. Those who love Jesus and those who hate him. But there is no one sitting on some imaginary fence. You're either on one side or the other. There's no such thing as polite indifference. At best, it is quiet rebellion. And its truest form, it is a loud, violent rage. And so you, beloved, who are here today, have you kissed the sun? So much more than a cute little peck on the cheek. Have you embraced him as king and savior and Lord? Psalm 2 ends wonderfully. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But that raises then an additional question. Why do they pray for boldness, God's people? Just because Jesus is Lord does not mean Christianity is easy. Has anyone discovered that yet? Just because Jesus is Lord does not mean that Christianity is easy. In a word, Christians pray for boldness, not only because we are mindful of the world's opposition, but because we are also mindful of our own weakness. That's why Christians pray and pray for boldness. As soon as Peter and John are released from jail, they immediately go back to their friends. That makes sense. These were the first waves of Christian persecution being experienced in the early church. This new fledgling gathering, the church was learning that they would not only proclaim the cross with their words, they would bear the cross with their backs. They would live it out. They would walk the talk and they would talk the walk. The rulers of the world were still set against the Lord and against his anointed And because they were against the anointed of the Lord, even Jesus, they were certainly set against his church as well. In verse 24, this gathered little fledgling church does something that's really quite beautiful. They pray in a way that's described as though the many were lifting up one simple and audible voice. They pray together to God and they refer to him as the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it. Why do they pray this way? Why on this first moment of persecution do they pray to the Lord, O sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and reflect even on creation of things in the sea and everything in it? One author notes it very helpfully. It's because in the first century there were no no debates between Armenians and Calvinists. They all believed in the sovereignty of God. And they were entrusting themselves to God as to a faithful creator. And there's a beautiful lesson here, a beautiful point to be drawn. God's people find help for the present by looking to what God has done for his people in the past. He who created all things is also the same one who upholds all things and preserves all things by the word of his power, as we're told in the book of Hebrews. Our reformed creeds, all of them really, Speak of Christ as one who gathers, preserves, and protects his church from the beginning of the world to the very end of the age. When the people of God find themselves in a pinch, in a tight spot, it's a great thing for them to do to take a few steps back 
and see the trees in light of the forest, to see the moment in light of the story, to see today in light of history. One of the hymns that we often sing goes this way, Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Do you see what the psalmist did there? Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Where do you find, beloved, your help for the present? It ought to be by looking to the God, our God has been faithful in the past. And it's in this context that they quote from Psalm 2. You see it there as they apply it, first to the Savior and then to themselves. In verse 28, particularly, they, they reflect on the way that all these things that have come about are part of the purpose and as well the plan of God, which is really quite a baffling thought. The nations were not sovereign. God was. The nations did not ultimately prevail. God did. What the nations thought they had succeeded, their vain plot, actually failed when Jesus was raised from the dead. But it's almost hard to hear regarding the crucifixion of Jesus that God predestined this. It doesn't simply say that he allow it or woke up one day and was surprised when he discovered it or was alarmed as though he had no thought that it might happen, but rather that this was part of the purpose, the plan that God himself predestined to take place. Whether it's easy or difficult for us to wrap our minds around, God predestined the death and resurrection of his son. Scripture tells us that even before the world began, God had a plan. He knew what he would do. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew what they would do. When Jesus came into the world, he knew what he would do. He knew why he was here. And when he got to the very end, he said, Lord, I have done it all. I have fulfilled your purpose and your plan. All things work out according to God's plan. Even those who rebelled against Jesus and had him crucified did so according to the divine foreknowledge and plan of God. So let me ask you just a very deep theological question that requires a one-word answer. It's good if you get it right. Were they guilty, or was God sovereign? The answer is yes. The words of their prayer are beautiful. In verse 29, And now, Lord, they pray, Look upon their threats and grant us, grant us that we might speak boldly. What a great word. Boldly. The sovereignty of God does not destroy human responsibility. It establishes it. Recognizing that God is sovereign, the creator and sustainer of all things created in heaven and on earth, causes them to pray. Because they know God is sovereign, they pray. And sometimes I wonder if we are confused to think that because God is sovereign, there's no point in praying. After all, he's sovereign, and he has a plan, and it's going to just work itself out anyway, so why pray? The apostles and this early church gathered, found that the sovereignty of God inspired them to pray. It didn't quiet their prayers. It invigorated their prayers, as it should ours. And on did they pray. They pray that God would grant to them boldness. And notice what they didn't ask for. They didn't ask for comfort. They didn't ask for their persecution to end. They didn't ask that the world would find some polite, easy way to just, you know, get along. 
for quietness sake. They prayed for boldness in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution. And what does that look like? Brings us to our final point. What does boldness look like in action? There are a lot of ways in which I I very much appreciate this prayer. The apostles in the early church did not assume boldness. They prayed for it. Boldness doesn't come naturally. They had to pray themselves into it. Peter and John were mindful not only of the strength of their opposition, but even the weakness that dwelled within. And we are as well. We're as bold as lambs. But we should have said bold as lions. It was said of John Calvin that he had the boldness of a grizzly bear and the meekness of a teddy bear. And that's deep theology. The boldness of a grizzly bear and the meekness of a teddy bear. Another beloved, Coronis Van Til, an early servant in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, has a line that I've found unsettling because it's bothered me. I've decided to let it bother you as well. He says, if we will not be bold for Christ, Jesus will humble us if need be humiliate us that we might learn to be bold for Christ. How do you feel about that? Does Jesus want his people to be fearful or bold? Does he say just pray the opposition away? Or rather does he say pray for boldness in the midst of opposition? In many ways what you see here in Acts 4 really is the continuing story of the church today. It's not simply the true story of the whole world. It's a true story of the church. Praying for boldness in the midst of being bold. Praying for strength in the midst of recognizing how weak we actually are. Being humbled that we might learn to be bold. This, you see this dynamic all over the New Testament. Philippians 1, 4, 14. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's a strange and providential dynamic that the more the church is persecuted in the book of Acts, the more bold it becomes. And that really is the story of the church in history. The more it is persecuted, the more bold it becomes. And why is that? Why is it that we become more bold when tested, more bold when opposed? It's because in many ways, uh, the things of this world go quickly slipping through our hands. We begin to realize that the things of eternity are all that matter. And the things that sometimes most make us afraid, men who stand against us, Satan who stands to undermine us, even these have already been defeated by the anointed of the Lord, King Jesus. A remarkable dynamic is even apart from opposition, from without. Many Christians are often the most bold in their profession of faith when they are just moments away from their final breath. When the things of this world grow strangely dim, our faith becomes bold as a lion. Many of us will be more bold on our deathbed than we have been on our feet. Why is that? Because we will be humbled. We will be reduced to nothing more than who we are in Christ. And having him, we will know that we truly have all things. That's boldness. Their prayer for boldness 
is a prayer bound to the hope that God would continue to speak and to act. They even go so far as to ask for signs and for wonders, a prayer that is not uh, repeated throughout the entirety of the New Testament, but it is here, not for the signs themselves, but to point to God. As long as that new revelation, that revelation that we call the New Testament canon was being given, so also were the attending signs, all of these things done powerfully in the name of Jesus. But there is one sign I want to draw attention to, and it's probably not the one that you are expecting. If you look at verse 31, it says, The house, the place where the apostles Peter and John and this fledgling church were gathered, it says it shook. It shook. Why was the house shaking? Doesn't happen very often in Scripture. It's referred to, however, a few times and is worth considering. I'm not alone in thinking that there's something of a connection here to the giving of the Word of God at Mount Sinai, to now, on the other side of the resurrection, God is once again giving His Word. And just as there was at Mount Sinai, attending signs and wonders, the angelic presence that often comes when the ministry of God's Word is being revealed and given afresh. But notice a tremendous difference While there are certain similarities here, the shaking, the signs, the wonders, uh, the remarkable presence of God, when the place shook in Exodus 20, Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, make sure you catch this, the people stood far off to receive the word. Here in Acts 4, on the other side of the gospel, Jesus, having descended down and returned from another mount, Mount Calvary, now gathers his people together to spread and to speak the word. You see the difference? Sinai threatened and it dispersed people away as the word was spoken by God and received. Here, people of God are gathered together in the gospel to spread and to speak the word. And as the people stood there at Mount Sinai in fear, Terrified here in Acts 4, it's the opposite. They are described with boldness. They pray for boldness. What they ought to do, speak with boldness, is what they pray for, speak with boldness. And it says finally, climactically in our text, and God answered their prayer. God answered their prayer that they would speak with boldness. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the text ends wonderfully telling us that they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Isn't that beautiful? Several points of application as we reflect on the text. There really are, beloved, only two types of people. And you see them clearly displayed, even distinguished in our text. There are two types of gatherings. There are those that gather together in the spirit of Psalm 2 against the Lord and against his anointed. They are like little children playing king of the hill, although they're playing a game that really should be called cosmic treason, rebelling against God, trying to take God off of his throne, and he laughs at them, he derides them, he mocks them, and he will judge them. On the other side of the mount are those that have been gathered together by the Lord by the Lord's anointed, 
his holy servant, Jesus. Those who have been gathered together by the work of the Spirit, who now find fellowship in Christ. Sin creates a common bond. Sin and rebellion create a common bond. But the gospel creates a truer, everlasting bond. If these are the only two types of people in the text, representing the only two types of people in the world, beloved, which are you? Shall you be found gathered with those who vainly plot against the Lord and his anointed? Or will you be gathered with Christ and his people? Kiss the Son. Repent and believe. For those who have not are truly unsafe. And those who have, have peace and safety in the presence of the Lord. Secondly, believers, church family, are we bold? Does the world scare you? To quote a book title, do people seem big and God seems small? Sometimes they do. But Van Til was indeed right. God will humble us and make us bold for him. Do you find comfort in what God has done back then as a means of inspiring confidence for what he will do even now? When you were tried, when you were opposed, are you capable of looking back to what the Lord has done, not only in Scripture, but even in your own life? He is the God who creates. He is the God who upholds. He is the God who sustains. And he promises to do exactly what our creeds say. Jesus continues to gather, to preserve, and to protect his church until the very end of the age. The proof and the fruit of that is that you are here. The fact that you are here proves that God is still keeping his word. He has gathered you and he disperses you, but not in judgment, but rather to speak the word of God boldly. He even draws you in to your friends, to the means of grace, in order that he might send you out. We are in Acts chapter 4. This is the biography of the Holy Spirit carrying out the work of the Great Commission. It's just getting started, and on this wonderful note, it begins by the church praying together for boldness. We'll have our congregational annual meeting here in about an hour. What shall we pray for as a congregation? That we shall cower like lambs or be bold like lions before the world. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, Aerosmith had it partly right. We really are living on the edge. But they have no answer. The Bible does. And that's why we ought to be bold. The gospel is the only thing that can truly fix this world's problems and bring us comfort. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, that you have been pleased to set your king on Zion, your holy hill, and that all that the world might do to attempt to take that hill will truly prove to be a vain thing, for Jesus has been raised triumphant from the dead. And we also confess to you, O Lord, that there are times in which we are far more bold, far more fearful than we ought to be. We lack the boldness that we should have. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to remember what you've done in your works of creation, we ask, O oh Lord, that you help us to remember how faithful you've been in the past. But we pray in particular that you would fix 
our eyes upon Jesus, crucified and resurrected as the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help our little church to find our part, our place in the Great Commission, that you'd grant to us more and more boldness, that you would humble us as you see fit, that we together might lift up the name of Jesus, the only answer to this world's many problems. We pray, Lord, that this day none would depart in unbelief, but that you'd grant to us all genuine repentance and genuine faith, and that we would find all of our confidence in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.